Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm here this afternoon with Sarah Roger. And many of you, if you're readers of the Enterprise, are familiar with Sarah because she wrote wonderful columns for the community caregivers this summer all about helpful things which I myself learned from being officially old at age 65 <laughs> about healthy healthy tips. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Melissa. I'd just like to start by finding out about you. Um, how, how did you come to be interested in medicine? Sure. Um, so I'm a second-year medical student at Albany Med. Um, and I never thought I was going to go to medical school. That was never like in the cards for me. It wasn't my plan. Um, but I got into medicine. I was, I did my undergrad at Cornell, um, and I was pursuing, um, a dietetics nutrition program. And then I became a dietitian after that, uh, down in New Orleans at Tulane. And then while I was doing my internship year, um, observing and shadowing and doing rotations, I realized that I would never be happy as a dietitian. Um, I loved the subject matter. I loved working with patients, but there was just like an element of taking care of people that I thought was missing. And I realized very quickly that if I wanted to really take care of people in the way that I wanted to be able to, I would have to go to medical school. And so here I am. How interesting, because so many medical students, and you would know because you know your classmates, they have this idea since they were children, mm -hmm. and it's just this straight line. So which college were you at at Cornell? Um, I was human ecology. So. And the idea, I now understand why your columns had so much expertise about nutrition. Thank you. And what an interesting way to come at medicine from, because... Mm -hmm sort of we are what we eat yes and yet you wanted to go that next step and be treating the whole person rather than just what the person's putting in his or her mouth exactly so in medical school are you specializing or is it too soon your second year to know what direction you're going to be going so it's a little early um i'll figure out what I want to specialize in uh, during third year. But this year is nice because uh, you learn all about like the normal human body in first year and normal systems. And then you learn about pathology during second year and um, how things can kind of go wrong. And it's interesting, you know, there's nutrition thrown in around everything, which I don't think people really pay attention to. A lot of people didn't like biochemistry, and that's the stuff that I get like really excited about because I love the nutrition <laughs> aspect of things. So we just finished a unit on um, hematology and lymph, so like blood and like red blood cells and white blood cells and clotting. Um, and there's a lot that has to do with vitamin B12 and a folate deficiency and how all those things, and iron and how all those things can kind of play into... Um, like your blood and how mm -hmm. you feel every day from like a really hard science perspective. Um, but I won't pick what I want to do until next year. Um, but it seems like there's a little bit of nutrition thrown into everything, which is nice. Yeah, and I bet you're ahead of your classmates because you've got that background that you do. In that way. A lot of people have a lot more research and science, mm. hard science background that I don't have. Um, but I, I have the nutrition thing down, which is nice. Yeah. So tell us, how did you come into contact or to intersect with the community caregivers? How did that happen? Sure. So during the school year, I actually do a program... Um, Oh, gosh, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it. Um, I'm so sorry. But it's um, 
it's a service learning program that's with um, dementia and Alzheimer's patients who sign up to be part of the program. And um, I have had a buddy all year. Um, her name is Rosie. She lives in Altamont, actually. She reads my columns. Um, and so I was working with her all year, just meeting with her. We go apple picking. We get dinner. Just spending time so together. So she's a buddy that has Alzheimer's? She has all. She has dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's about 80. So she's older. Um, but it's nice. I love spending time with her. It's... Uh, it makes I miss my grandmother a lot, and so it's nice to have a grandmother type figure in oh, my life like gosh, that. I love it. It makes me so happy. Um, and so when I was looking for things to do this summer, you know, I say, "Oh, you can do research. You can do nothing." I don't do well with doing nothing, but I also really didn't want to do research unless it was something that like I love and care about. I don't want to like spend my time in a lab with pipettes and that like doesn't appeal to me. Um, so I met with the woman who is the head of service learning at Albany Med. And she said, oh, yeah, we have work-study positions available to go out and work with partners in the community. And that's how she said, oh, I think there's one you're really going to like. And that's how I got set up with community caregivers and with Linda Miller. Um, and it was just, I and mean, it was... did a, really like it. I loved it. Oh, my God, I had a great experience. <laughs> so I want to hear about that experience and what you like, but I just want to back up a little about Rosie because... I know, and I'm sure most of us know, people with Alzheimer's. And to me, it seems like the saddest disease of all because you're physically fine, but you're not Mm. who you were. And I wonder if you just have any insights on that, um, especially with this relationship you seem to really enjoy with Rosie. Um, Yeah. So my grandmother also suffered from dementia during her later years. Um, She passed away at about 93. Uh, It'll be about three years ago now. Um, And one of the things I noticed with my grandmother and with Rosie, and Rosie's not nearly where my grandmother was, um, is that people are really aware of the fact that they're going. And so my grandmother always used to say, like, my head's not doing good today. Um, That, you know, you feel fine and you can get up and you can walk around, but it's this frustration of not being able to remember someone's name that you used to know or like you have it at the tip of your tongue and you lose it um and I think being patient is like one of the biggest positive skills to have with somebody um and to wait for them to come up with it rather yeah, than supply it. Exactly. Because it gives them this autonomy that I think a lot of older people worry is being taken away from them. You know, they move into a home. They feel like their kids are taking care of them more. And so allowing them to live an independent life, even so much as like little things of speaking on their own and remembering on their own brings, I think, a lot of great satisfaction in addition to frustration, but allowing that autonomy, I think, is really important. And you said you do activities like apple picking, Mm -hmm. so it's just kind of doing things with the person that they can still function with and enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Great. So tell us now why it was such a good fit for you at Caregivers. Just kind of, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, tell us a little about what the organization is and does and how you fit into it. Sure. So Community Caregivers um, is a nonprofit organization that provides social services to people in need in the Albany, Altamont community. Um, so it spans, it's, it's kind of widened its reach over the past couple of years. I believe it was started in nineteen in the early 1990s. So it's been around for a really long time. And it started because a group of people decided that we have all these services, medical services, 
for people who are getting older, but we don't have social services that help them age well in place. And again, going back to that autonomy idea, it's so important to just allow someone to stay in their own home, but they might ne- they might need a little bit of help to stay there. So it um, so community caregivers sets you up with volunteers um, for rides to appointments, for grocery shopping, for a friendly phone call every week, um, just to kind of help people like get through their week if they they are no longer driving or they're struggling to. I don't know, to stay independent. Um, So it provides that social support, which is great. And what was your role there? Sure. So I was um, was a summer intern, which was a lot of fun. Um, And it was nice because I kind of got to do a lot of different things. Um, I started the summer. I met with Linda, who who runs uh, Community Caregivers, the the outreach division. And she said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I love writing. Um, My background's in nutrition. Um, I like organizing things. Um, whatever and whatever really you need help with. Um, so I got to write a lot of articles. Um, I volunteered at uh, the St. Vincent's Food Pantry and did a lot of patient navigation there. And so I developed educational materials that I could hand out to people at the food pantry or just hand out, um, use as handouts for people in the community. Um, I worked alongside um, Center for Law and Justice as well to come up with some educational materials but really to try and bridge the gap between medicine and like other things that people not in medicine might not understand to try and help them uh, bridge that divide a little bit more. Well, I want to focus on your writing eventually because I thought it was wonderful. But <laughs> Thank tell you. me, just you use the phrase patient navigation. Can you just kind of unpack that a little? Yeah, and- sure. Um, so patient navigation is this idea that um, you go to the hospital or you go to the doctor and you find out what's wrong with you or they give you a diagnosis and you're treated and then you go home and suddenly everything feels really confusing. Like I think that's very familiar to a lot of us. Um, you get home and you're like, am I, spo- am I supposed to take this medication now? How often do I take it? When do I go back to the doctor? And it, there's not all of the questions answered at home that you wish you had thought about or had answered. And so patient navigation is this idea that's now coming about and being a little bit more popularized in medicine and the medical world that um, helping patients navigate their own healthcare treatment, whether it's speaking to the doctor and advocating for themselves or coming up with a care plan that makes more sense for them and fits their lifestyle better, or once they get discharged from the hospital or they go home from the doctor's office, helps them stay on top of their um, their healthcare plan so that they don't fall behind and then have an emergency issue. Do you sense that there's been a shift, and maybe you're too young to notice it, from the doctor who used to be, it used to always be a he, um, was this all-powerful figure that you kind of that dispensed knowledge to mm. you and that you were almost thought it was inappropriate to ask him questions to now is there more of a sense of sort of you share in your own health care have, have you noticed this is it yeah absolutely that's something that um we talk about a lot at school we have a whole class that's four years long um it's run longitudinally um and it's called Healthcare and society and it's this whole idea of what does it mean to be a physician for your patients um ethically and it's one of, it's like my favorite class i love it well, tell us um, more about it why is it like your favorite class yeah so i love the the ethical side behind medicine i love the social side behind medicine like it's not 
I love science. I think it's fascinating. But the stuff that really gets me so excited about medicine and being a doctor is this interaction and this really close relationship that you have in your patients' lives. Um, And I do think in the past it was doctor's orders, right? Mm -hmm. Quote, unquote, doctor's orders. Mm -hmm. Um, And now patients are really, more patients are coming in with, um, I don't know, their own diagnoses half the time that, oh, I Googled, these are my (laughs) symptoms. (laughs) But does that get in the way or is that? I think it it can do both. Uh So I think in some ways it it brings people to the table to have a more um, engaging conversation in a lot of ways, which I think is great. Oh, I, I read about this. I think it might be this what do you think um right but i think the physician also recognizes that it's not just what they say they have patients who want to be taken seriously and want to be their opinions want to be considered and i think moving away from this paternalistic view of medicine as doctor's orders and more of an interplay between um patients and physicians and providing healthcare for the patients i think is really great um i think it can become an obstacle if a patient comes in and they're adamant about you know, we talk about receiving antibiotics a lot. Mm-hmm. Patient comes in, I'm sick, I don't feel good, I would like antibiotics. Well, if it's a viral infection, antibiotics aren't indicated, they're not going to help. And they're only going to increase your antibiotic resistance for you and for other people in your community. So just maybe wait it out five or six days. But people don't want to hear that, which makes it difficult. So it, it, the internet is like a very good thing and a very evil thing at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> that in a lot of fields, yes, actually. Yes, yeah. I can imagine. So... Another thing that you just now touched on that I wonder about, um, as the role of the doctor is changing from this kind of paternalistic one, I also wonder, um, with so many practices which make sense from the doctor's point of view, we just did a a podcast with a man that wrote about Dr. Anna Perkins, who was this pioneer in the hill towns and practiced solely on her own and knew her patients. You know, she went to their houses Mm -hmm. with her little black bag and so much of her healing had to do with her hands-on personal relationship. Mm -hmm. And then in the same edition of our paper that we were writing about this book, we had the current hill town doctor, Kristen Mack, who is developing, got this grant to develop this way to um, relate to people, um, you know, through technology. Telehealth. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I just wonder, especially with um, so many practices, and I understand why doctors would want to do this, you need your own life, that you come into the office and you don't always see the same doctor. You can see, you know, one of who's ever there. And I wonder how much of healing you think has to do with a personal relationship between the sort of Anna Perkins model, Mm. or um, if that's kind of passe and really not not something that's needed for healing. So I, I love the way you phrase it as healing, right? Mm-hmm. That like medicine as as healing and not just providing medical care. And I think that's a really important distinction. I think a lot of healing not only comes from medical care, but it does come from working and having a close relationship with your physician, um, which I think is unfortunate in where medicine is right now that that seems to be going away. And I, I believe that like the pendulum will, the pendulum will swing, right? So we've swung from an Anna Perkins type doctor who has the, a very close intimate relationship with their patients to this idea of telehealth of having almost no FaceTime with your patient or with your physician. And how do we get back to that middle happy place of having some form of continuity of care, but also having flexibility in that? Um, 
I do think there is a lot of value in face-to-face time with patients um, and actually staying with a patient um, and staying with a physician. And if the physician isn't the right physician for you, then by all means find another one. But I, I very much value the continuity of care um, that existed in at least my father's generation and this Anna Perkins type generation of um, providing health care. Um, and I hope that as things go forward in medicine, I really hope we don't lose that because I do think it's important for healing. Okay. I just love how you have thoughts on all aspects of medicine. So I'm now going to return to what I thought our conversation was going to be about, <laughs> which is your writing. And you said you love to write. Can you just tell us a little about yourself as a writer, how you developed as a writer? Have you always done this? What kind of writing you do besides the columns that we were lucky enough to have? Sure. Um, so when I said I'd never thought I would go to medical school, I thought I was going to write. Um, I always wanted to do journalism. I, when I started uh, undergrad, I thought I was going to double major in art history and feminist gender studies. And like my ideal job was like working for a really cool magazine publication. Like that's what I wanted to do. And somehow mm-hmm. I've like climbed this other path. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I and I ran a multimedia organization in college that gave me the opportunity to write for a magazine. Um, and I wrote pieces for uh, the Cornell Daily Sun while I was up there. Um but I, I don't know. I, my style of writing is very informal, I think. Um, I try and make difficult topics really accessible for people. That's always been something that I've enjoyed doing, um, whether it's blogging or working at startups or writing for The Daily Sun or writing for Slope Media. I really enjoy um, kind of taking something that other people might find inaccessible and unpacking the science behind it in a way that makes it really attainable to people, to just anybody who picks up a copy of the paper. Um, Because I think that's one of the biggest disconnects that I saw in nutrition and medicine is people don't always know the big words and they don't always know the diagnoses or what they mean. And think really we have the internet, we can always Google things, but you don't want to pick something up and spend every two seconds looking up what it means on the computer. So for me, I always wanted to make it easy and accessible and understandable for everybody. Um, But at the same time, staying in evidence-based science uh, medicine. Well, and your columns this summer, you did just that. They really didn't need editing, (laughs) which is nice for me. But also, I thought, I just wonder if you could talk about how you um, came up with your topics. For people that haven't been reading um, Sarah's columns, they were things like the difference it makes with the color of your plate and the size of your plate. I mean, how would you ever have thought of something like that? Yeah, so that's all stuff that um, there's a really big food and brand lab out of Cornell. So I was kind of exposed to the idea of like the social construct behind nutrition and this um, the psychosocial aspects of food and um, health care um, from, from the time I was 18, 19 years old. So that's always stuff that I've stayed on top of because I think it's really interesting. I think it's much more interesting to most people to read about um, how like small modifications like the size of your plate and the color of your plate can change the way you eat over like, I don't know, like a specific protein and a meat. That's how it's broken down. Like I don't think people find that as interesting as like really accessible and topics. Also, it's something you can actually do something about. Because after I read that, 
I have white <laughs> I started thinking that, and I also started thinking about what I was serving. I mean, it's something you can actually affect in mm-hmm. your own home. Yeah. But just could you, you're good at unpacking things. You just mentioned this, is it a lab at Cornell? Yes. With a psychosocial approach? Could you just kind of tell us a little more about that and sure. what kinds of things they do there? Yeah, sure. So it's called the Food and Brand Lab. It's run by Brian Wansink, um, who's really well known in his field of um, social aspects of um, of food behaviors. So why we eat the things we do, when we eat the things we do, how we eat the things we do with the people we eat with, um, and how all of those factors influence what we put into our mouths and then how that kind of outputs um, obesity and chronic disease and illness based on, you know, moving many steps back from presenting with an illness, many steps back, well, why are you eating this? But not, okay, you're eating this. Why are you eating this? Who are you eating it with? What's going on in your life? Why are you eating the size of the food that you're eating? And looking at the environment that you live in um, to impact those behaviors. And that's what the lab is about. Um, and they do a ton of research in it. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. I, so, like, <laughs> I know you can't recreate everything this lab does, but could you just give us some examples about ways that people eat? And uh, Like, I mean, if it's, say, in a restaurant versus around your table versus in front of a television, yeah, you're sure. likely to eat how yeah so the lab is really cool because it does um a lot of experiments in um a more like science classical scientific perspective of they have a variable that they want to measure and they modify other um other things to try and see how you can manipulate that outcome so they've done studies um exactly like you were saying you know if you have a buffet of food and you give somebody a like a appetizer size plate versus a dinner size plate does the person with the appetizer size plate get up and go back for seconds? Or does the person with the dinner size plate generally tend to eat more, which they do because you have a bigger plate to fill. So your brain, your visual cues are telling you, okay, I've got my plate filled, but it does. your brain isn't going to pick up if you've got the smaller dinner plate, the appetizer plate, or the bigger dinner plate. It just wants to see a full plate. And so your, your brain isn't going to tell you, I feel full it's going to tell you I'm fearful regardless, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, but the way you get there can be two very different ways. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are you doing a good job of explaining I, that? I, I'm going to have to now think about a whole other level. Does it, it, does it make a difference? Have these experiments shown, like if you're eating in a group, do you tend to eat differently or than if you're eating alone? Yeah. Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not 100% sure what the outcomes of those studies are, but all of those things are like major factors in our food choices and how much we tend to consume. I think I remember reading a study that if you're at the table with a group of people and there's food on the table, you're more likely to overeat because you sit there for a long time. It makes sense, right? You sit there and you pick and you put this on your plate and you put that on your plate. But if you're eating by yourself, you tend to eat one serving and then you're finished eating and you get up and you put your dish in the sink versus sitting and chatting right. and eating. So do you tend to, uh, uh, there are other many other topics, we should just probably look at some of them. I printed them all out. This idea of nutrition labels I found was fascinating mm. because they're there and you unpacked what is in each of them. Yeah. I mean, when you, you for people... I can see you. You're a fit-looking, slim, healthy person. <laughs> Are you somebody that 
when you go grocery shopping, you know, pays attention like to the labels and ha- just tell us a little about that. Yeah, sure. So I, um, my family used to joke that I was always like the health nut and I was always looking and I was always scrutinizing and I've become a lot more lax over the past maybe like five years just because I don't like I know what I like and I tend to buy the same things at the grocery store mm-hmm. now but certainly when I go grocery shopping um I go grocery shopping a lot at Trader Joe's which I feel like most people do or Market 32 and I if there's any anytime there's a new product that I'm like oh this looks really good first thing I do is flip it over and even if I don't pay attention um to like the calories or to the fat necessarily I always look at the saturated fat I always look at the sodium and I always look at the sugar those are the three things that I always look at. I know I I also try to look at fiber, um, but I tend to eat a lot of green leafy vegetables and fruits anyway, so I don't worry so much about that, but I'm really careful about sodium, saturated fat, and sugar. And why is that? Sure. So saturated fat has been linked to um, atherosclerosis and heart disease, um, and it's one of the major issues that we have in the society is hidden saturated fat it's so saturated fat the easiest way to describe it i learned this in high school saturated single bond stacked like the three s's so it's the car those are the carbon back bond is saturated bonds and it's it stacks up so the way like a stack of so think about the difference between butter and oil at room temperature right so oil is liquidy at room temperature and butter is solid solid is stacked oil is liquid so this idea of this saturated fat the same way that butter stays solid at room temperature it's also going to stay solid in our bodies so that's like my easiest way of thinking about it great yeah it's like the easiest way of thinking about it for me i'm like i come back to it every time even in school now like many many years later Mm. i'm like saturated solid stacked (laughs) um and then sugar obviously is um linked to diabetes um linked to obesity it's i would say sugar is one of the is the biggest nutrient to be concerned about now because people don't realize how much sugar is in food and we don't realize how much sugar we're consuming every day. Um, I do remember when I was a young mother, back then the baby food all had sugar in it. Mm. <laughs> and so I remembered like mashing up, you know, my own squash or whatever <laughs> so that my babies would not want to, you know, I have, I was under the false impression I could train their tastes. And then the first time someone gave my child an ice cream cone, she just loved it. So I just came <laughs> over. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but sugar, and what was the third thing? You had three Sodium. Things. Sodium, salt. So why yeah. is that a problem? So salt is also linked to heart disease. Um, and it's, I mean, that's, heart disease is the number one killer in this country. And it's a preventable cause of death. Um, and diabetes is a chronic illness, also preventable cause of death, and is linked to many other chronic diseases, that it becomes a slippery slope of having diabetes and then getting other chronic illness secondarily to um, the diabetes or to heart disease. So for me, those are three things that it just, there's no, we don't need so much of them. I find that it doesn't affect the foods that I like or the way foods taste, if I have foods with less sugar, if I have foods with half the amount of sodium, if I have foods, even when I'm cooking, if I use oil instead of butter. Um, and it's just three easy ways to, you never feel deprived because you're not looking at the calories or th- that's like a really funny trigger for people is like, oh, it's a low calorie food. This, you usually don't taste that it's lower in sodium. You don't taste that it's lower in sugar. You don't realize that it's made with oil instead of butter. So you never feel deprived, but you're doing things that are healthier for your body. 
excellent strategy. I think that's great. And then uh, sort of on the other side, or maybe this is the same spectrum, is exercise. And you wrote quite a bit about this over the summer. Um, some of the lesser-known benefits. Could you just go over that? And you also had a column on the difference between exercise and what did you call it? Just physical activity, I guess. Yeah. yeah so yeah. if you could just talk a little about that for the people sure. that haven't read your columns. Sure, sure. Um, ooh, I don't... It was a long time ago that I wrote this. Um, so the idea behind um, like staying active and the benefits there, there's a ton of research that's gone into showing how physical activity, you know, we think physical activity is staying thin, staying fit, but there's every, there's so much behind it that's mental um, and deals with stress management and allows you, especially for the old, for an older population, just allows you to keep your body, even if you're not as thin as you were in your 20s or your 30s, which is fine. No one's expecting that, and that's okay. Um, why is that? Why are we usually not as thin as we were in our 20s or 30s? <laughs> so what? We, I, we start to deposit, um, I believe we start to deposit adiposity, like fat, differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and our bodies just change. Our metabolism slow down. Um, but we still need to run the same basic um, same basic machinery, right? Like you still need calories for your heart to work, for your brain to work, but you need kind of less and less as you age until you hit a point and then you're, I wrote on this a little bit, your taste buds change and then suddenly you find you're not eating enough so you need to increase your calorie uptake. Um, but that's in like, I believe like 80s and 90s mainly. Um, doesn't come until much later on. Um, but we tend to, I mean, I think we tend to gain weight because we find that we're less active and... Um, we're moving less, we're driving more, our bodies aren't built the same way to go out and run every day that they might be used to. Um, so there's kind of like a lot of different social factors that also play into it. Yeah, well, I was reading a book, it had to do with the big changes in China under Mao. Mm. <laughs> um, they were, they were, the author was positing that there were no fat people in China until the westernization <laughs> kind of took hold, because it was just part of your everyday life, how you mm-hmm. would walk or you would exercise. It wasn't like you went to the gym. It was right. just sort of part of what you did every day. Yeah, and, and you still see that, honestly, in Europe, you see that as well. I mean, there, the rates of obesity across the globe are climbing because of westernization and western diet um kind of infiltrating across the world um but there's a very famous book called like the french woman's diet i believe and it's basically this idea of like how do french like french women are so thin but they eat eat cheese and they eat croissants and they eat butter and they drink red wine and yet they're so thin and it's this idea like (laughs) if you if you've ever been to europe you notice that people walk everywhere and they bring their own meals from home they're not constantly getting takeout and they're riding their bikes and they're staying active in a really healthy way that's not okay i've gone to the gym for an hour now i can do whatever i want for the rest of the day and eat whatever i want for the rest of the day and that kind of undoes um the idea of exercise and just doesn't the idea of exercising for an hour doesn't even lend itself to a healthy lifestyle because you've exercised and now you can drive to your friend's house or you've exercised now you don't need to go on a bike ride later that afternoon and so kind of rephrasing even reprogramming ourselves to think about healthy activity and physical activity as something that's enjoyable for you and isn't a scheduled chore, which I think is how many people view exercise, but finding ways that you can incorporate staying active um, in a way that you love. Like if you like 
taking a dance class, take a dance class. It doesn't need to be to burn the calories or to gain muscle. It can just be because you enjoy it. And I think that's like the biggest missing piece for exercise in where we are today in society. Do you uh, have some passion like that that you pursue? <laughs> so I, um, I'm a yoga teacher um, on top of all of my other things. So I, <laughs> right, I know. Do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> Not enough, clearly. Yeah, right. um, I, so I try and take at least one yoga class a week um, because I'm now, I teach a yoga class once a week at the medical school that's um, free for medical students, which I love doing. Um, but if I'm going to be teaching class, I have to take class. Um, and then, and is yoga for you exercise, or is it a kind of meditative thing as well? It's both. It's both. It's both. Yeah. It's the, I always tell people it's the thing that keeps me sane um, because there are a lot of days that I go to yoga and I want to sweat and I want to get a good workout, but there are also a lot of days that I go to yoga and I just want to take a restorative class and like hang out with my thoughts for a little bit um, because I don't get the opportunity to do that often enough. And have you been doing yoga for a long time? Yes. So I started practicing yoga when I was in college, um, so about eight years ago. And uh, did it come out of something religious, or did it come out of just, no, just curiosity? Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had never done it before. I'd done Pilates before that. Just, I don't know, I think a friend was like, oh, come take a Pilates class. So I did that a few times. And then I had a friend who was like, oh, yeah, there's a yoga studio down the street from school. Why don't you come to yoga with me? It's free um, on this certain day. And I was like, oh, like, okay, sure. Why not? Like the stakes were so low and I really, really loved it. And I've been doing it for eight years. I got certified to teach in 2015. Um, and I got certified to teach cause I thought I was going to teach at a job and that job didn't end up panning out, but getting certified to teach was like always something that I wanted to do. And I'm just glad that I got that under my belt. Cause I love having that opportunity. Well, I wish our time hadn't gone so fast. I've learned so much. Is, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, anything you want to leave our listeners oh, with? Oh, man, I don't know. Um, I am so grateful that you even thought of having me on today. So thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I think we've all learned a lot. <laughs>